where do we go from here if we're giving up who we are? And yes, being a woman is tough. And you know what? It's not fun to have your period and it's not fun to have cramps and it's not really fun to push a watermelon out <laughs> during childbirth. But but that's what makes us so strong. And and as a result, we don't need to be men. We We are strong in ourselves. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interest in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate. And if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Political Contessa. I am Jennifer Nassor, and I am your Political Contessa. I'm going to continue with a podcast that I started around culture wars, because I think that this is something that even though I like keeping things to the economy and um, fiscal issues and idiotic politicians, I still think that there's something really important that we need to talk about around culture wars. And for me, those culture wars really only have to do with my kids and and how they these issues affect my children, which are, you know, your children or your nieces and nephews or your friend, best friend's kids or your future kids or your grandkids. And I think it's really important because I think for so long, people have felt like they needed to be silent. I think when people started getting canceled, when shows started getting canceled, when entertainers were canceled, when businesses were getting canceled, so many people decided not to have their voices heard. And and as a result, I think that there are institutions that kind of ran away with messaging and changed the message and changed the the story um, and and took a lot away from parents where the parents' role was. And in one of those things, I think it's schools. I think schools have really taken the parents' voices away and parents' roles in their kids' lives. I think doctors also took a lot of roles away from parents. And I think as as a mom, I know I should be the person, along with their father, who makes the decisions in their lives until they're old enough to make their own decisions. And even having a 19-year-old, I still am very involved in her decision-making because we build trust and respect. And she still comes to me and asks me those questions. And so I have with me today someone I've had on in the past, but my friend Ashley Jacobs, who is co-founder of Parents Unite. And today we are going to be discussing some of these culture war issues. So Ashley, thank you so much for being on Political Contessa. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So last time we talked, it was a lot about DEI. It was a lot about the, um, you know, how, what kids are being taught in school. And, and I, I think that the, the conversation maybe for us here in Massachusetts is, has changed a lot. I feel like we've gone from racism to transgender issues kind of in a quick heartbeat where one is not as talked about anymore and the other one is a lot, almost too much or too much ever. And so um, let's talk about that. Like where where are we? And 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 Parents Unite focuses, I should say, and I'll let you talk about Parents Unite, but it focuses primarily on private schools because interestingly enough, I mean, all of us, regardless of whether your child is in a independent school or in a public school, we all pay taxes. But then, you know, 
there are many people who decide to send their kids to independent schools. So you're paying for the public school (laughs) with your taxes, and then you're paying out of your own pocket for the private schools. And then when your kid gets to private school, you think, I'm paying all this money. I will definitely have a say in what's going on. And what we have seen, and Parents Unite has definitely diligently exposed is that that's not necessarily the case. So I'll let you I'll let you talk more about Parents Unite, but I'm a big fan of the organization. Well, thank you. I think I'll step back first and say that the problems that we're facing in private schools are the same problems that pretty much every parent is experiencing in all K through 12 schools with the exception of a very few. And the overarching theme that I think we have to keep in the back of our brains is that we are the first generation of parents that's competing with the internet and our schools to raise children, to become healthy, happy, well-adjusted citizens, right? It's really hard to parent. And historically, parents had a great relationship with their schools. They were partners. They trusted the schools to always do what's in the best interest of the children. And I think most of us grew up in that world COVID exposed that that's not necessarily the case. It turns out that there's an agenda at a lot of schools and among a lot of teachers who were raised, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And there is a whole push to create children who are social justice activists. And all of the DEI, which you can call it whatever you want, but it is CRT, which is what all a lot of these red states are fighting against. That is what all of this is. It's an umbrella term. It means many things to many people. We can call it wokeism. We can call it whatever you want, but it's negative and it's divisive in its intent. And I think that it's um, pushing belief systems. It's pushing one worldview and it stifles any debate that people might have, which is why, to your point, people have been very reluctant to speak up because nobody's going to question diversity. Who doesn't think diversity is a good idea? Well, it depends how you define diversity. Who's never, who's going to question the notion of inclusion? It's a great idea, but how is your school defining inclusion? Is it only inclusive of people who feel like they belong because they have certain opinions and ideas? Right. So these are the kind of conversations that people should be having, but it's really hard. And when you ask a school, well, help me understand equity. Does that mean that everybody ends up at the same point? Because that seems to take into account no variations in groups. If a kid studies harder for a test than another, do they still all get the same grade? Schools have a really hard time explaining that. So I think when you think about young kids in schools, internet, the most miserable generation we've ever seen, kids being taught that they're either a victim or they're an oppressor, that they have to save the planet because we're going to die, that their gender is fluid, any discomfort with their changing body is not normal. I mean, this is a crisis, right? Like you've got a mental health crisis that all the doctors are actually agreeing about. And why is this happening, right? It's happening in independent schools. It's happening in public schools. It's happening to increasingly younger children. And I think that's what we really need to try to honestly talk about, that all of these, you know, sort of remedies are not actually solving any real problems. And in fact, the schools that are, you know, doubling down on all these DEI plans, you'd actually have to ask the question, like, what specifically happened at your school that is requiring the focus on all of these activities and things? It used to be enough to teach kids the golden rule, to be kind, respectful, learn your times tables, how to read, some history, some science, and then call it a day. Knowledge seems to be secondary now at schools. And I think with that, people are looking for a purpose. And so for a lot of teachers, this has become their purpose and they're all in on it. Which is really unfortunate. I will say my kids go to a private school and my my younger ones. And I have to say, even in this era of all of the the craziness. And I'll share some stories that happened last year and early last year. And I talked to the headmaster about, but for the most part, they still really focus on education. (laughs) And which as a parent makes me thrilled that my kids are actually learning subjects. I heard yesterday on the news that one school district is looking at the emotional, social, emotional feelings 
social emotional learning this learning is the, in math yeah. in math yeah and it, yeah. because i i didn't know that one plus one there was any social emotional need that needs to go through here like you have one apple plus one apple is two apples and and where where in calculus is the social emotional learning needed and so you know if it comes into poetry fine you know how do you feel that that's great but but not when you are trying to learn reading writing arithmetic, history, you know, and history, hey, how about we actually teach history the way it was and not new versions of history? So, you know, this is this is all so interesting. And you're right. I I think it's it is very generational. We are the first generation that's had to deal with this because there was we didn't grow up with an Internet and generation after us, you know, it was still dial up you know, dial up internet and you'd have to be at home at your computer and the whole family was sharing it. And now everyone has at least a device, if not multiple devices. So I guess, where are we? Where are we going? How did this happen? You know, like you said, you know, we we were all busy. I mean, and especially, uh, you know, any of us Gen Xers, we were super busy doing the million and one things that we were told to do growing up, keep your head down, get your education, go make money, you know, raise a family, do, you know, a thousand things. Everyone has to be Superman and Superwoman. And then COVID hit and we were all stuck at home with our kids. Everyone was having many more conversations, paying much more attention to school. And maybe that was the enlightening moment. George Floyd, unfortunate situation, another another moment, you know, but we saw Black Lives Matter, the the organization, not the not the tag hashtag, but the actual organization ended up being, you know, fraudulent and stealing money from from people who thought that they were doing good. So we have we have that end. And then somehow or another, we we transitioned, no pun intended, into into the world that we're in right now where, you know, men, if they, and I've seen this, I've done podcasts before, Ashley, by the way, of like, and I said this in a recent podcast that my 11 year old who plays soccer and plays ice hockey has had boys competing against her on the soccer field and playing ice hockey. And she plays goalie in ice hockey. And it is the most horrifying thing to see little boys charging at my daughter or going to check her on the field where it's not that she can't compete against them, but at 11, they're one size. When she plays ice hockey, she's playing in middle school ice hockey. And in fifth grade, those eighth grade boys are twice her size. And I have a problem with that as a parent watching and praying that my child doesn't get really really injured. And I also have a problem with the fact that if your kid isn't cut out to be on the team that they genetically were made for, <laughs> if you have a boy and he's not good enough for the boys team, then he maybe he shouldn't play and you should find a different sport for him. But he shouldn't be playing against girls. And I don't know many girls that are trying out to play on the boys football team, right, as a boy. So where where are we? Where are we going? When is the crazy train going to stop? Well, I'm sad to tell you that remember that Title IX rule that was meant to give sex-based equality to girls and boys in schools? And it wasn't just in relation to sports. It was basically all educational um, opportunities, right? It was sex-based equality. There's been a rule rewrite. And the rule rewrite that has happened by the federal government, which we've been fighting pretty robustly, basically says that um, sex is now including gender which includes gender identity. So it's it's essentially going to be a law. Yes, this is happening. It's we have we've been part of a coalition of uh probably 25 organizations that actually wrote because when a rule is changed or a proposed regulation is changed, the government has to notify the public and then there's a comment period. And so we ended up as part of this coalition generating I don't know, 250,000 comments, which was the most they'd ever received for a rule rewrite. And the government then has an obligation to respond to that mass of comments before they can actually enact the change. But it's probably inevitable, just given what the administration is doing, that the slippery slope between gender and sex is going to basically be codified into law. And I think that's why you're seeing all of this 
pushback, you know, with schools and athletes. Um, there's been a ton of lawsuits that have been filed in different states to try to fight this because the implications as you get older for girls are uh, the reason that Title IX started with, right? Like you wanted to have equality of opportunity so that you could get a scholarship to college. And so suddenly if you're, you know, competing in a sport like track where you've got a boy that's potentially taking a spot, that's one less spot for you to get to college. And that's a very simplified uh, example. But this notion of sort of gender versus sex is, I think, right now a big part of this culture war because this whole notion of transgender kids, of schools really pushing this whole inclusive environment and encouraging small children to really question their gender identity from very young ages uh, seems like very dystopian and crazy because most children are not born in the wrong body, right? Like every once in a while, historically, it was like 0.001% of the population would benefit from you know, transitioning to the other gender. And that's always been that statistic. But what we've seen in the past, I don't know, 10, five to 10 years is this, it's called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And it's a social contagion that's really happening primarily to girls. And it's been almost a 4,000% increase in girls who are saying they want to be boys. And you could imagine so many reasons why, right? Like for years, they've talked, you know, you, it's hard to be a girl, first of all, because your body changes, you have to have babies, the patriarchy, misogyny, like everyone makes it out like it's just the most horrible thing to be a, a woman. Okay. You know, puberty is uncomfortable. Okay. Mental health, anxiety. Okay. On the victim hierarchy, you know, girls are pretty much at the bottom. So maybe this makes you feel a little bit special. Okay. You're celebrated at school. If you're the one that raises your hand, you can check the box for trans or non-binary. Okay. So all these things and then social media factoring into it create the conditions where this becomes sort of the next trend. Most of these kids, you know, maybe have a comorbidity, like a you know, maybe they have ADHD or maybe they have autism or anxiety or depression. Um, and that basically becomes secondary once they decide that they want to be trans. The affirmative care model, which uh, is something that in 2017, the American Academy of Pediatrics adopted, uh, says that the affirmation model, the child determines their gender and when transition should take place. So if your 10-year-old comes to you or to a teacher after having been coached to be questioning it, right? Because most kids just don't wake up in the morning and decide, I want to be another gender, right? Like you you have gender stereotypes, which we've always had. You don't have to dress like a Barbie or G.I. Joe and still be whatever sex you are, right? Like not all girls wear pink. Some girls wear blue. Some girls are tomboys. Some boys are more feminine. That's always been totally normal and fine. But now they're, you know, if you don't fit into one of these sort of regressive stereotypes, you're automatically labeled the wrong gender. And so all these things come together to get people to question. And then once the kid starts questioning it, they're told that that's right, because that's what the doctors are supposed to do. They're supposed to affirm, affirm, affirm. And then once you start down that path, you know, the, the data that you are seeing now suggests that it's really hard to sort of dial it back. There's just so much that's there. That's so mind blowing. So number one, um, Title IX, as any woman who is OK with that changing needs to have their head checked because that was so important and so fought for. And it really puts women's rights back 50 years because once once that changes i i don't know why we we women would want to give up any benefit that we got for being women and being oppressed for as long as we were right the right to vote the right to own property the you know the going to college just going to college right like the notorious, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like, you know, looking at the stories of her and Sandra Day O'Connor having to get into law school and being the only women to ever be admitted to their law schools is is just such it, this is such a slap in the face that this is actually happening. And yet where are the women? Where are the feminists? Right. Like, that's what's so amazing about this moment is that this suffocating empathy that I think a lot of people are feeling in supporting these marginalized communities has sort of overtaken rational thought. You know, it's hard as a woman to imagine another woman not believing that Title IX as a sex-based law is something worth preserving. 
you know, you saw this, the example, and it's been, you know, overshared, but the swimmer at Penn, right? The Leah Thomas, you know, what that did to women in college sports is an example of how this, you know, potentially goes awry. And people were outraged. Now, those colleges basically forbid anybody on any of those teams from speaking publicly. So shame on them. Um, but this this culture of censorship around these complicated issues is, I think, what's inhibiting people from really speaking up and taking a stand. And then I also think there's just a general lack of awareness and people just don't want to dig in and do the work to understand where this nets out. Which is really unfortunate because, again, it hurts it hurts women and women make up over 51 percent of the population. And so this to me as I consider myself a feminist, this actually, this pisses me off. I mean, I'm a mother of three daughters, right? And so it's one from the fairness perspective. And and actually, this is great because it's Women's History Month that we're having this discussion. But someone had asked me, you know, how do we get women to equity and equality? And one of the things I said is that, you know, we need to stop apologizing. We need to stop apologizing for all the things that we have, whether it's child care or, you know, taking care of an elderly family member or whatever it is. We women are still learning that we don't have to be everything to everyone and we have priorities. And the other thing is stop being mean girls. You know, we saw what the, what the view did and how, you know, if you don't have it almost feels as though if you, you know, you I say I'm a feminist, but I'm a Republican. So, you know, if I was on the view, Joy Behar or Whoopi Goldberg would tell me that I'm not and I can't be because I'm a Republican. Right. And so but I am and I believe in women's rights and I believe that this this moment in time that we're in is really, really disruptive to women's equality going forward because where do we go from here if we're giving up who we are? And yes, being a woman is tough. And you know what? It's not fun to have your period and it's not fun to have cramps and it's not really fun to push a watermelon out <laughs> during childbirth. But but that's what makes us so strong. And and as a result, we don't need to be men. We we are strong in ourselves. Well, but but I think you've said something really important. I think part of the problem is that women are in this moment of an inflection point in a weird way, right? Because on the one hand, the message that you've been getting probably since the feminist movement started, and we could make a case that feminism has basically destroyed women, right? Because what it's done in some cases is told women that they have to compete like men, that they have to be more like men, as opposed to saying, you know what, you're a biological woman, you're incredibly special because you can do all these things that men can't do. And you should have a choice if you want to compete the way they do and break the glass ceiling and all that stuff. And that's great. But you shouldn't feel that you have to. Right. But there's this burden of feeling like I have to do all these things that men do. And so that means I'm going to be less feminine. I want to be less feminine because that's considered bad. And at the same time, if you think about women, we're the nurturers, we have the babies. And so genetically, I would say that we almost have the burden of nice, right? Women want to be nice. If you say, what is sort of the highest moral virtue or characteristic that a woman would describe of another woman? It's she's nice. And so this, this burden of nice, I think, is what creates this suffocating empathy, which creates a condition where you see that, you know, 70% of you know, single women who are Democrats vote a certain way because they're maybe angry or maybe they're nice or whatever it is, but something is going on within women that is not allowing them to sort of see the forest beyond the trees. And I think it's quite dangerous for all of girls because instead of sort of banding together and saying, okay, you know, yes, it's hard to be a girl, but we're here for you. We support you. We're strong. We can suck it up. We're going to get to the other side. And then it's up to you to decide what kind of a woman you want to be. You don't have to, again, conform to a aggressive stereotype. You don't have to be a jerk, but you can be a jerk. You don't have to be nice, but you can like let these women figure it out for themselves as opposed to forcing them into an identity box and, and making them miserable. Because I think that's what's happening. If you look at college, 60% of college students are now women. You know, we've demasculated demasculinate, whatever, you know what I mean? Men have, there's a war on boys. And so we've basically taken out all the masculinity with boys. And then you've got all these women that are overeducated and then there's no men for them to marry and everyone's miserable. And, you know, in some ways, regressive stereotypes are there for a reason. There are certain things that men historically have done and certain things women can do that men can't do. And in some ways you need to kind of go back to basics. 
<laughs> I love that so that is so amazing and so true because I I mean I, I just look at you know people that we know right and like super super overeducated and everyone has different careers I kind of joke about my own career I'm like I am a reformed lawyer right I went to law school because I thought that's what I had to do and in order to compete with the boys and I wore my Hillary Clinton pantsuits back in the 90s when I was working and then finally one day I was like you know what this is terrible. I don't want to look like this anymore. And I found my, you know, I found my peace in looking like a woman and coming to terms with, yes, I have children at home and I need to leave work or I need to go to play or I need to go, you know, to the school bake sale. And that's okay. And if you don't like me and I don't really care, but I'm smarter than you are and I'm more educated than you are and I'm going to perform better than you do. Right. (laughs) So I kind of got to the point where, but I mean, it takes a, a long time to get there. And and it's true because I think we have for generations put all of that responsibility on the backs of women to feel like, yes, you need to be all of these things and not saying, pick which lane you want to be in and just own own that lane. And so now you have like you said, 4,000%. Is it 4,000% more? Yeah, I mean, it depends the statistic, but it's roughly 4,000% increase in the amount of girls who are wanting to transition. And and the reason it's significant is because I think historically, and I'm going to not get the numbers exactly right, but it was usually like there were more boys potentially wanting to uh, trans to girls and that's not the case anymore. It's it's much more lopsided to the girls. Um, and, you know, some people will make the argument, well, because it's so much more openly accepted, more people are, you know, more open about it. That's not true, too, because you would expect if that were the case that you'd see it among all different geographies, all different age groups. But it's this one age group, right, where it's really sort of a social epidemic. And I think that's what should concern us. And I'll I'll read you like Windsor. And I always pick on Windsor because I just think it's so unfortunate that they've lost their way. It's an all girls school. And, you know, like even for them their DEI report, they have a section on inclusive language. Okay. This is an all girls school that should be celebrating girls and helping them find their voice. And faculty and staff are discouraged from addressing groups of students as girls and ladies. And teachers are more regularly in the practice of asking students individually about their preferred pronouns. Okay. This is a girls school. Let them be girls. Celebrate the fact that they're girls. If you're not interested in being a girl, you shouldn't be in an all-girls school. But but this is the world you're getting in. And the reason is it's because it's all about inclusion. We want everybody to feel good. But if you really want to go down a dark path, inclusion isn't really inclusion, right? It's excluding anybody or anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, which could be an idea, which could be someone who said something that you didn't like that made you feel less than. And so that's where this whole DEI thing gets very complicated and it's very censorious is that you can't really ask a question about that because if you do, then you're offending someone and you don't want to be that person. So I have two follow-up questions and statements. One is, so that's just amazing. Do they, do schools, do private schools when a parent, when a student applies, right? So it's the parent who's paying the tuition. Do the schools send out the school statement on, hey, you're coming to an all-girls school or an all-boys school, and we are not addressing them as girls or ladies. We're addressing them as they, which, by the way, is not proper English for a singular to be called a they. That's just one really weird thing that I still am hung up on. But I mean, do they do they send this out so that way? Because to me, it would be well. What would why would you then go to a single sex school, whether that be a elementary school, a high school, or a college? Why would you pick a single sex school if they're not going to give that gender that is there all the tools that they need? to be successful later on in life. I mean, and that goes from your subjects, your school subjects to the confidence building, you know, here is what you need to go forward. And I don't mean girls home ec like in the 1950s. I mean, like actual, you know, tools that you need and being able to do public speaking and speak as as a woman 
why why would you choose that? So are they sending this out so that way parents can see it? No, I mean, that's the little bait and switch that all these schools do in the name of inclusion, right? You had to go to Appendix C in the DEI report to find this. The average parent applying to these schools has the view book picture, right? Where we love girls, they show girls on the website playing sports and looking happy. And they have very strong brands and they have decent college placement. And so as a parent, you're really holding your hopes on that brand. And it's not until you get there, if you're paying attention, that you start to realize, gosh, every time I get correspondence from the school, not one correspondence ever uses the word girls or ladies, right? You have to be kind of noticing that and paying attention because the average parent probably doesn't read this stuff very carefully. But, you know, there are patterns that emerge. And yes, on the website, for marketing purposes, they benefit from being an all-girls school. But when you're there, they don't, you know, call the girls girls. And that is true on every bit of correspondence that you'll ever see, which is mind-blowing to me that they're not celebrating girls as girls. And yet parents, either they do know and they don't like it and they leave or they don't care. You know, I can't answer that. Uh, that's just amazing. And my other, it's just, it, that will never cease to amaze me that that is actually the case and and how there's such a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability to not just the parents that are applying, but the current families, the donors, the people who keep the school running. There's just no accountability to anyone because it is the bait and switch. My my other thing is what I find really unfortunate, and I have a lot of gay friends in our generation, unlike our parents, were totally like, whatever, I don't really care. As long as you're a good person, I don't really care, you know, if you're coming from Mars. And why is there such a push for this transgender stuff? And not just an accepting of, okay, you're gay, like just live your life out and and we're okay with that. Or, or, or you're, or you're bisexual, right? Like whatever, whatever it is. So you're not, you're not heterosexual, whatever else it is that you are, you know, like cross dressers, how many of us have gone to those shows, right? As with bachelor parties and whatever. And it's great. It's so, it's so fun. You know, it's like, you have to pick something at 11 before you go through puberty. You can't just all of a sudden come out at 13 or 16 or 25 and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm gay. And, and what is this doing to the gay community? Um, so there's a lot of pieces to unpack with this. So the LGB community made tremendous strides, right? Like starting in the 70s and then with um, Equality Act, and they worked hard to get those rights, which are important. And what's happened that I don't think people fully understand is that the T has sort of tried to hijack the LGB. And what that means is that's a very strong political force um, that has their own agenda. Um, and you can talk to a bunch of different people and get a different reason why. But where this relates to children is that you don't want to ground children in anything. You want to normalize all sorts of queer behavior because all of this is in the, the queering of everything, right? Like what's up is down. Uh, you take away all the norms uh, so that you normalize everything. The phrase you've heard maybe is people's minds are so open that their brains have fallen out. When you start to normalize everything and children aren't grounded in anything, they start to question everything. And whereas puberty used to be the most, you know, well, I guess technically, biologically, it still is. It's the most impactful change that your body will ever go through. And it used to be the case that we allowed children the luxury of going through puberty, not expecting them to have figured all this out. They go through puberty, they come out the other end, and then they start to know a little bit more about themselves and what they're attracted to, et cetera, et cetera. Now they want everything to be sort of finished up before you even gone through puberty. And we know that that's not true or likely to happen accurately because the brain isn't formed right until the age of 25. And so this notion of, well, we'll block puberty because we'll just buy time that ends up putting kids on a medical leash that most likely they won't come off of. Um, but what that's doing is it's uh, hurting, you know, gays and lesbians because a lot of these kids just might be gay or lesbian, but like they haven't had the time to figure it out because they're being pushed to 
accept a behavior that might not be the one that they want. And that's the risk in this, right? Because if you think about like gays and lesbians are actually, that is a sex-based attraction. That is a physical attraction that they have. And so when you deny the concept of sex, you're basically denying them that they exist or should exist, right? Because trans is gender-based. So the two are completely at odds with each other, which is so fascinating that you haven't heard of more people in the gay community. I mean, there are a bunch like gays against groomers, and there are some groups that are really fighting back, but you'd expect to hear more because this is totally undermining all of the legitimacy that they have fought for and deserve um, in the name of some political action group, which is really what the trans movement is. And then when you figure out the whole medicalization of that lifestyle, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. Like you're not going to make any money on gays and lesbians because they're just normal people that do their thing and they are who they are. But this trans thing, there's a lot of money to be made. Right. And there's a lot of drugs that you have to take for the rest of your life and there's surgeries. And you've heard whistleblowers come out and talk about, you know, Washington U hospital where they were basically looking for more revenue and they thought this might be a great way to get it. I mean, like it's mind blowing, but when you start to follow the money for all of this stuff, it leads you to some pretty dark places. And until you're really deep in the weeds, you know, the average person just thinks, oh, we're just being nice. We're just being kind and tolerant. And yet that's fine for older people. But when it's an agenda that's being pushed down by Rachel Levine, who, you know, is trans, you have to start to question people's motives, especially as pertains to small children. Yeah, I mean, that's my my big concern is just the the small kids and the impact of it and people playing God, you know, instead of it being what you were born as and, and let things play out. And when you're an adult, you, you're you can choose to do whatever you want. So I you know, you make great points on how the medical community got involved in this. Right. Because really, you know, big pharma controls everything and and hospitals need to make money and surgeries are a great way to make money. And, you know, it's all kind of intertwined going back to 2017. It's crazy that this has been around that long. Oh, it's um, been longer, but that I think is when the affirming care model was adopted. And again, like most other things, there hasn't been allowed to be pushback by a lot of pediatricians who do not buy in, but the way uh, policies are created. It's by like a very select few at the top echelon of the AAP bureaucracy. And they're not allowed to even, the, the rank and file pediatricians aren't allowed to even enter the conversation with dissenting opinions in a way that's meaningful. It's it's quite astonishing, actually. It's amazing. I would be horrified if my doc, my pediatrician was pushing this. But how how did it transfer, though, from the medical community to the school community? where this is such a, is the lobby that large on education to bring this in and make it where, you know, we we have this compassionate math <laughs> and, and compassionate subjects all the time. I mean, you know, or, or starting, how did it get to schools and how do we get it out? Well, I mean, again, it's all under the auspices of DEI, right? So after George Floyd, the big push was race. And, you know, this is all part of queer theory, which is sex, sexual, gender, I should say. And it all comes in through the same strand of activism, right? And again, if we talk specifically about the independent schools, it comes in through the professional development. It comes in through all the consultants that come in. It comes in through speakers. It comes in through activist teachers who want to you know, talk about certain things. It's all in the name of inclusion. We want everybody to feel special, you know. There's potentially maybe a superficial lack of knowledge that a lot of people don't understand the difference between LGB and T, right? And so the fact that it's all lumped together, you know, maybe you have a school that has a, a gay couple that has children in the school and you're trying to be supportive and accepting of them. And so you feel the need to go overboard with all of this other stuff potentially, right? Like it's it's hard to say how it happens to every school because they all do it differently. They bring in different speakers. They they have different emphasis on it. Different schools do it differently. You know, there's a fourth grade school in Rhode Island that was having kids as part of their curriculum. Literally, it'll be in our newsletter. You'll be able to see it. But they had kids sort of label all these different scenarios with kids like so-and-so was born with these parts, but chops in this part of the school. And they're asking fourth graders to think about what? all this, label it. Yeah. 
And as a fourth grader, you know, you're just normalizing it, right? And some schools do drag street, drag queen story hour again to normalize this. They have different books to try to really uh, normalize all these behaviors that aren't necessarily the behaviors you would talk to your four-year-old about or your fourth grader about or your whatever, right? And so sex ed is the other way that a lot of this comes in. You know, different states have different rules as, as far as like comprehensive sexual education. And again, the different states have all of this in the rules. You have to teach certain things at certain times. But if you think, if you step back and all the conspiracy theories are probably true, right? Because we learn always that some, there's a little bit of truth in everything. But this whole Marxist thing, right? Like, I mean, at the root of all of this is Marxism. And that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, all of this is really consistent with that. And, um, you know, the sexualization of children is real. And that's really what all of this is. And that's why parents need to pay attention because it's it's harmful as kids are really in an adolescence naturally questioning things. This gives them an extra layer of complications that they just don't need to be exposed to. I mean, back in the day, it this would have been, you know, pornographic. It would have been taboo to have these types of conversations with little kids, especially outside of the home right at school you would have never ever no one would have ever touched it out of fear of getting sued or a news story scandal which is really unfortunate so i mean how do we right and and i use it as the global we we whether you're a parent today or a grandparent whether you would like to have children one day where does this stop does it ever end and what suggestions do you all have, you know, through Parents Unite and your greater network to, I mean, I'm always telling people to be advocates. You have to advocate for yourself, for your kids. You have to advocate because your neighbor might not be able to. You need to have your voice heard and not be scared about it. But what are real ways that people can get involved here? I think that the first thing parents need to really do is ask questions, just basic questions, because parents are scared to speak up. They don't want to be called a bigot or a racist or something. I get that. But you can ask questions about the curriculum and about the syllabus. And, oh, what are we doing with our fourth graders in this subject? Like, you should see all the lesson plans. You should see the books that they're reading. You should see the exercises. What is the pedagogy grounded in? You know, they're basic questions you can ask. And if you don't get an answer, red flag. You should talk to other parents. Are they seeing different things? As children get older, you can talk to them, right? What have you done in school today? Did you have any lessons? Most kids, if you start to have dinner with them or conversations with them throughout the day, you can start to normalize conversations that you'd want to have with your child and and role play like, oh, did you talk about this? And what would you say if somebody asked you this? And I think that's a starting point because I think the level of awareness around all this is still incredibly low. The average person has no idea really what any of it means because again, we all want to be nice and we all want to assume the best. And most of the teachers are great and they are really in it for the right reasons, but not all. And I think that that's where you just have to have your red flag up. And even if things have an intent that is, you know, wholesome and pure, you still have to be really vigilant. And sadly, the trust is really gone, I think, between parents and schools in most schools, because you can't unsee what you saw during Zoom. And you can't unsee some of these lessons that were just shoddily prepared with lack of rigor and scholarship. And I think that our opinion is that all of the things that you're teaching these children in school really need to be backed up with evidence and research and scholarship that suggests that this approach works, right? So back to your original conversation around DEI, what evidence do you have that the approach that you're taking with respect to DEI is based in any grounded science research or data? Like it's all a bunch of hogwash, really. If it's some teacher that picked up a workshop on the internet, like how is that value add? And if it's not, then why are you wasting school time doing it, right? So again, there's limited hours in the day. There's an opportunity cost to all of this stuff. So unless it's really grounded in something meaningful and provable, then don't bother, which is why, you know, you can read all these little bulletins from all these schools and they all say all these fluffy things and they all have these problems they're trying to diagnose, but they never source it. They never cite, they never cite like a research project or a study or something legitimate. It's all just how I feel. And we all know that feelings are varied and everybody has different feelings. And if schools are basing curriculum off that, then we're in big trouble. 
<laughs> I don't think they want to know my feelings. <laughs> I think every time I call, our headmaster has a heart attack. <laughs> but you care. But I, but I care. And, you know, Ashley, you hit on something that's that I think is really important. You know, a couple of things is one, watching and seeing what your schools are teaching. But the most important thing to me is have conversations with your kids. Ask them how their day was. Ask them, what did you learn today? Because something like that is probably going to stick out in their memory more than, oh, you know, fractions stink, right? It's going to be something more impactful, especially if they're feeling bad about themselves because they feel like they aren't conforming to everything. The chance of them speaking up about it at home where they're comfortable is probably really high. And, uh, you know, my kids, I think I'm such a political house that my kids just automatically kind of tell me all the stuff that they see. But it is something that I think parents really have to be involved in and, and find a community. I mean, I told our headmaster a year ago, you know, if you don't know how parents feel, host a town hall. Right. And parents should be asking for that, you know, a an opportunity not to yell and scream, not the stuff that the media covers where people are, you know, losing their minds and running up to school committee members. But but actual let's sit down and have a conversation as adults and tell us, you know, the parents we're we're paying for this education. Tell us what our kids are being taught and why this is needed at this time. And and I just think that there are a lot of people, as as my headmaster said, you know, people are scared of me. And I said, yes, yes, people are scared of you. That's why I'm the only one that calls you. <laughs> but it's it's a really important point. And and I think, you know, we need to we need to stop the madness at some point. And our kids, I mean, you see, you, you know, look, the studies are are kind of despicable, right? When you look and you see how the US is faring with kids on math and on reading compared to other countries and how we have fallen behind so far behind. That is a serious matter. And for our kids not to be able to compete globally as they get older, because our schools have gotten so stuck in this vortex of social justice, being a social justice warrior. And yeah, sure. When you go to college, you can join every club you want. You can even have a club in high school about it. But, you know, we're, we're really losing out on our competitiveness. And that is going to really hurt generations of kids after. Well, I mean, the problem is we can't agree what the purpose of school is, right? And if as a country, if you can't align around the purpose of school, you're going to have a hard time making your schools work. And then the whole teacher union fiasco, I'm not even going to get into. But the reality is if they just did one thing, if they just taught reading properly at a young age, I mean, it's not complicated. You start with that teach every kid to read by a certain age and expect more of them and give them the supports if they can't get it the first time. It's not super complicated. Other countries do it. It just, it has to be a priority. Parents have to help neighborhoods, churches, whatever it takes, you know, as a society, we have to value it more than we do now and not just pay at lip service. And it's not a problem that you just throw money after, right? Because it's just hard. Like we need more great teachers who can teach reading. There just aren't enough. I mean, there's so many things going on that are, you know, causing challenges for this moment. Um, But I would love to see people just rally around the idea of what is the purpose of school for a country? Are there certain unifying factors that we all should learn Um, If we're going to be part of a country together, it seems right now everything is about dividing, 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 dividing. And that's just not helpful for anybody. Right. Well, yeah, I blame a lot of it on on mainstream media that just, you know, they like to cover talk show hosts like to cover the the craziness and not cover the things that are uniting. And I agree with you. I mean, I I think the earlier we could teach kids how to read the better success that they will have long-term. And there's just not enough priority put on that. And our politicians on both sides just have not put enough priority on that. 
And I think there are lots of good teachers. I think lots of good teachers are caught up in this mess of what they're being told that they have to do versus what they went to school to actually do. And a lot of kids are are sadly the victims of it. And, you know, and it ranges. It ranges from the, edu- you know, they're, they're at the end of the day, this entire conversation is sad because it's kids losing out on the quality education they should be getting for things that make other people feel good, make adults who have behaved badly feel good, you know, at the expense of our children. Agree. Well, Ashley, I love this. I love this conversation. I could talk to you all day, every day, and we could go in a million different directions. So you're going to have to come back again. I can't wait to see the Parents Unite newsletter that is coming out. Um, The last one had my hair on fire. And so I'm sure that this is going to do the same thing for me. But where, uh, what is the website for Parents Unite? It's parentsunite.org. Um, and there's a great movie that we're going to link to that just came out. Actually, it's called Affirmation Generation, The Lies of Transgender Medicine. Um, and so that will have a little blurb in our newsletter as well. And I think it's a movie that every educator and parent should watch. And ironically, it's actually kind of funny. The people who produced it, they call themselves all lifelong West Coast Hollywood liberal Democrats. So it's a very nonpartisan look. And in fact, a very, you know, liberal look at, you know, how all of this is just very destructive and scary, but it's one of these movies. I think most parents watch the social dilemma. It's, it's a similar type of a story where you really got to see what's going on behind the curtain. Can't wait to watch that. That's going to be on my, my weekend list to raise my blood pressure up. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us on political Contessa today. I really appreciate it. And always, always educational and interesting and blood boiling, but it's super important. And I think that um, these issues should not be overlooked and, and they're not political issues. They're nonpartisan issues. They, they really are about our children, which is the future of our country. And we should really take more time to figure out what our kids are learning at school and make sure that they are all getting the best because at the end of the day, it's the best interests of the children, not the best interests of the adults that have their own interests in mind. So thank you for being here with me today on Political Contessa. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 